And we're going to look at Daniel chapter 4 and 5 is where we're going to be. Now you, you may or may not know, but we're in an election season. It's not been on the news much, so you may not have noticed it and maybe you just have in passing. But we're actually near the election cycle, so I'm sure after Tuesday all the news media is going to go away and everything's going to be kind of calmed back down again. But this is a particularly contentious election. And I know politics has always been, I guess, somewhat controversial and has always caused tensions and some frustrations. But, but honestly, I don't remember a time in my life where elections caused this much anger, this much fear, this much anxiety and tension. Uh, of course, if you've been paying attention to the news, I'm sure you've seen things like Walmarts are not going to carry guns and ammo for a while for fear that they're going to be raided and looted and their guns and ammo would be used in the commission of a crime. Some larger cities, stores are boarding up their windows so they can try to hold off the looting uh, and the things that were going to happen when they expect it to go bad afterwards. And there's more and more and more and more stuff like that just kind of constantly going on. I think one of the reasons it is so contentious is the fear-mongering going on. And if we're honest, we have to say the fear-mongering is going on by both sides. Regardless of which side of the political aisle we may fall, we are being told this is the most important, the most momentous, the most history-deciding election the world has ever seen. The talking heads are ever talking. And they are always doing what they can to stir up fear and anxiety. So, so we'll vote the way they want us to vote. They are trying to make us afraid. So we will do what they say to do. So they're telling us things like if Biden wins, it's the end of America as we know it. But, we're told also, America just can't stand or survive another four years of President Trump. But if Biden wins, he's going to turn America into 1980s Russia. But if Trump wins, he's going to destroy the world because of climate change. Or he's going to allow the coronavirus to kill everyone in America. But if Biden wins, he's going to turn every city in America over to the Antifa anarchists. But if Trump wins, he's going to lead America into fascism and white supremacy. And the more the talking heads talk, the more contentious it becomes. The more they talk, the more fear is mongered. And people, their attitudes and their actions and their values are being shaped by these things. But as disciples of Jesus, we don't take our cues or get our hopes or allow our values to be shaped by the talking heads. Not the talking heads on the right, not the talking heads on the left. Rather, we take our cues, we get our hopes, and we allow our values to be shaped by the Bible and by the God of the Bible. Today, we are going to survey quickly, and it has to be quickly for time's sake, two chapters that will, I think, I hope, will prepare us for whatever this week holds. Prepare us for whatever's coming after Tuesday will equip us to relate rightly to the God of the Bible, will 
enable us to better live as disciples of Jesus. And will challenge us to understand our God is the God of the nations. He is the God over the nations. So if you have your Bible and you haven't found it, it's Deuteron- or Deuteronomy, no, Daniel 4. That's where we're going to start. And we're not going to stand to read it because we're just going to have to quickly go through here. And I may end up having to kind of summarize some things. But Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, unto all the people and nations and languages that dwell upon the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought towards me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in mine house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid. And the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore I made a decree to bring all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then came the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, and I told the dream before them, and they did not make known unto me the interpretation thereof. So all of this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar is the one talking, right? So this is probably Daniel writing from memory of what Nebuchadnezzar has said. This is quite possibly Daniel writing down a decree Nebuchadnezzar had sent throughout his nation. So what happened is Nebuchadnezzar was lounging about as kings often do. And as he lounged about, he had a dream that he did not understand. A dream he could not interpret and a dream that was kind of beyond his mindset. And so he called for all of his wise men and he called for all of the people who would give him counsel and interpret dreams and answer things like that. And he told them the dream so they could tell him what it meant. He knew it was significant. He knew it meant something. He very much believed in a God who gave those sort of dreams. And his wise men heard the dream and could do nothing about it. So, verse 9, verse 8, it says, But at last, but at the last Daniel came before me, whose name was Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And before him I, I told the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, master of magicians, because I know the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and no, no secret troubleth thee. Tell me the vision of my dream that I have seen, and the interpretation thereof. So nobody else can do it, so he sends for Daniel, because Daniel has a reputation of being able to give answers. Now, I love the way Daniel is described in verses 8 and 9, in whom the spirit of the holy gods... Wouldn't you like to be a person that the world looked at and said, now that's a person that's filled with the Spirit of the Holy God. I mean, that's how I want to be known. That's how we should all want to be known. But anyway, it goes on. So Nebuchadnezzar tells the dream. Thus were the visions in mine head, uh, as I said in my bed. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and the height thereof was great, and the tree grew and was strong. The height thereof reached unto heaven, and the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. The leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much and in it was meat for all, and the beasts of the field had shallow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the bowls thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. I saw in the vision of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven and cried aloud and said, Thus, hew down the tree and cut off its branches, shake off its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the beasts get out from under it, and the fowls from under his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and the roots of the earth, even with a band of iron and brass, and the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts of the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from a man's to a beast's heart. Be given to him, and let seven times pass over him. Now, so the king's dream, he sees a great big tree. 
It grows, it's big, it's enormous. It has a lot of leaves, it has a lot of fruit. It's a beautiful tree. The, the leaves are pretty to behold. The fruit is good for all. The animals can take shelter underneath it. And then someone comes down from heaven, calls for the tree to be cast down, for the cut down, for the leaves to be scattered, the fruit to be destroyed, uh, and for it to be basically rolled and to live, to lay down and, and let the dew and the grass fall upon it. And then verse 17 is what we would call the key verse of the next two chapters. Chapter 4 and 5. This matters the decree of the watchers by the demand of the word of the holy ones. To the intent the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men. And giveth it to whomsoever he will. And setteth up over it the basest of men. So this is the key verse. This idea. Not the key verse so much as the key thought. Daniel 4 and Daniel 5. God rules over all the nations of the earth. And God, who rules over all the nations of the earth, He gives the nations to whomsoever He wishes. Essentially what He's saying is He sets one up, He takes one down, He sets another up, He takes that one down. God is not an absentee God. He is not a powerless God. He is the God of and the God over all the nations. And He rules over them. And in verse 18, Nebuchadnezzar Asked Daniel for the interpretation. Daniel, though, is astonished for one hour. He's shaken. He knows what it means almost immediately. And his thoughts troubled him as he thought about what it said. And he said, let not the dream of the interpretation thereof trouble thee, Belshazzar, said the king. And Daniel said, my lord, the dream be to them that hate thee and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. The tree that thou sawest which grew and was strong, whose height reached to the heaven... And the sight thereof in all the earth, whose leaves were fair, and the fruit thereof much. And it was meat for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and upon whose branches the fowls of heaven had their habitation. It, it's you, O king, that art grown and become strong, for thy greatness has grown reaches to the heaven, thy dominion to the ends of the earth. And whereas the king saw the watcher and the holy one coming down from heaven, and saying, Hew the tree down, destroy it, yet leave the stump and the roots thereof in the earth, even with a brass of iron, or a band of iron and brass, and tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast of the field, till seven times pass over him. So it's you. You're the, you're, the, you're the tree. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king. They shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat the grass of oxen, and shall wet thee with the dew of heaven. Seven times shall pass over thee, till thou knowest. And here again is the key truth. The Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the root, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee, after that thou, know, thou shalt have known the heavens do rule. So what's going to happen is, something's going to happen at some point, and the king is essentially going to lose his mind. He's going to go off thinking he's an animal. He's going to live out in the woods. He's going to eat grass. He's going to live like an animal. And it's going to happen until seven times pass over him. And at the end of the seven times, he's going to realize that the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of men. And he gives it to whomsoever he wishes. But Daniel warns him that there's a way to avoid this. Verse 27, Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness and thy iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. It shall be the lengthening of thy tranquility. So Daniel says it doesn't have to be this way, though. If you would not turn from your sin and not be the great big jerk you are, things would go differently. Uh, it doesn't have to happen. This is a warning. 
but it doesn't have to come to pass if you would turn from your sin. Well, the king does not take Daniel's advice. Verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. So it all happened. At the end of the 12 months, so 12 months later, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon, and the king spake, and notice what he said. Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power for the honor of my majesty? The king is really sure it's all about him. He has done it. He is great. He is awesome. And he is wonderful. Now, keep in mind, what's the point? What's the key? The Most High ruleth the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. But Nebuchadnezzar says, no, I did this. I made this kingdom great. I have done this. So while the word was in his mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. They shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be of the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as an oxen. Seven times shall pass over thee till thou knowest that the Most High ruleth the kingdom of men and giveth to whomsoever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and did eat grass as an oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing. Nebuchadnezzar is not a good guy. Right? It's not as though Nebuchadnezzar is essentially a good guy, but then he gets a little puffed up and God does this. Nebuchadnezzar is a terrible, terrible human being. When Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem, he did horrific things. He had his soldiers kill men, women, and children. They took babies and they dashed their heads against a stone. Pregnant women, they had ripped open so the babies could be killed and the wives could be killed. And yet, through all of the horrors that Nebuchadnezzar did as he conquered the land, God brought no temporal judgment upon him. Right? God did not crack his head and cause him to lose his mind when he did those things. Now, granted, Nebuchadnezzar faced eternal judgment for the horrific things that he did. But he didn't face temporal judgment for those things. It was only when he began to steal glory that belonged to God alone. It was only when he began to say how great he was, how awesome he was, and he denied glory that belonged to God. Only then did God snap his mind. Only then did God cause him to lose his mind and think he was an animal. And he left him in that state for seven times, most believe, is seven years. For seven years. The most powerful king on the earth lived like an animal and ate grass and lived out in the field where the dew fell upon him. He lived there until his hair was long like feathers and his fingernails were long like claws. And he lived with just this time of complete insanity because God rules over the kingdoms of men and he gives it to whomsoever he will. In verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes to heaven and my understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what doest thou? 
So Nebuchadnezzar stayed like that. And then at the end of the time, he looked up and God allows Nebuchadnezzar's mind to return. And keep in mind, that's what happened. It was God who snapped his mind and it was God who brought it back. And at this point, Nebuchadnezzar gives God the glory he alone deserves. He says, God is the most high who lives forever and ever. Yahweh, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Yahweh's kingdom is from generation to generation. Yahweh is so great. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing compared to him. Yahweh is so powerful. He does whatever he wants and no one can stop him. Nebuchadnezzar realizes there is no God like Yahweh. At the same time, my reason returned to me for the glory my kingdom, my honor, my brightness returned to me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me. I was established in my kingdom. The excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth, his ways, judgment, and those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. There is no God like Yahweh. All his works are done in truth. His ways are just, and he's able to judge anyone he chooses, even the mightiest king. On the planet. Now we jump to Daniel chapter 5. Now it's only been just a few years. And we're going to go through this one really fast. It's only been a few years from Daniel 4 to Daniel 5, but it's been an eventful few years. They have been filled with murder, conspiracy, intrigue, and political decline. Belshazzar, the king in chapter 1, in chapter 5, verse 1, is likely Nebuchadnezzar's great, great grandson. But the events of Daniel 5 further illustrate the truth that we've seen. The Most High rules over the kingdom of men. And He gives it to whomsoever He will. Now, I am just going to kind of summarize because we still have a lot to cover. Um, that wasn't even halfway. Um, verses 1 through 4. Belshazzar is kind of made the co-regent. He's co-king with his dad. And he is feeling his Wheaties. And so he hosts a great big feast. And in this great big feast, you can tell it's a great big feast because he has a thousand of his lords come to drink with him. And as he's thinking about the greatness of his kingdom and the greatness of his dad and what Babylon has done, he sends for the vessels that they brought from Jerusalem that Nebuchadnezzar had brought. Now these vessels were things dedicated to the service of Yahweh. They were things that were used in the temple of God. When Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem, he broke down the walls, he leveled the temple, and he took the stuff dedicated to God because it was made with precious metals, with gold, silver, other precious metals, and it was taken and put in the treasury of Babylon as trophies to show the God of Babylon had conquered the God of Israel. But these things were had just kind of set as trophies all at this point, but Belshazzar now... He determines it is time to further show the greatness of his gods over the greatness of the God of Israel. So he brings them in, he distributes them out to the people, and they begin to drink wine out of these vessels which were dedicated to God and only to be used in service to him. Now this was, make no mistake, an intentional slight against the God of Israel. They, Verse 4, it says they drank wine and they praised the gods of gold, silver, brass, iron, wood, and stone. Right, so what they did was, as they drank these drank out of these vessels dedicated to the God of Israel, to Yahweh, they then began to praise Bel and Nebo and all of the gods of Babylon. Our gods are greater than Yahweh. The God of Israel is nothing in comparison to Bel, to Nebo, and, and the other gods of Babylon. But God heard, and God was not pleased. Verse 5. 
In the same hour came forth the fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall in the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Now, can you imagine? Can you imagine the scene? A hand, a discombobulated hand floats in the room and begins to write on the wall. How would you respond? How would you feel if you saw that? Well, here's how the king responded. The king's countenance was changed. His thoughts troubled him. And this part always cracks me up. The joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against another. He was scared, in other words. His knees shook and then his, the, loins of his joint, or the joints of his loins, it kind of means he just lost his strength and fell to the chair in absolute terror. The king, it says in verse 7, cried aloud to bring the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, the, uh, and, and tell them, tell him what, what these words meant and what was the meaning of the words. And anyone that could show the, what the words meant and the interpretation thereof shall be clothed with scarlet, have a chain about his neck, and shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. So there's the king, there's Belshazzar, the co-regent, who's second, and they would be third in command over the entire nation. Great promise, but notice he cried aloud. The margin in my King James Bible says that he cried with strength. I think it's trying to be dignified to say he screamed like a little girl when he saw the handwriting and he saw what it was. And he cried out and he asked them and gave them great rewards and great promises. But you see in verses 8, 9, and 10, none of them could give the interpretation. None of them could say what was meant by what was going on. But the queen mother was there in verse 10. Now the queen, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet house and the queen spake and said, O king, live forever and ever. Let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. There is a man in thy kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of thy father, light and understanding and wisdom was found. Wisdom of the gods was found in him. Whom the king Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, the king, I say, thy father made master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. For as much as an excellent spirit of knowledge and understanding and interpreting of dreams, showing hard sentences and dissolving of doubts, were found in the same Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show you the interpretation of the dream. Daniel is remembered. He is an old man at this point, but he is still remembered as the one who has the answers because he is the one who has the spirit of the holy gods within him. Verse 13, Daniel is brought in. The king talks to him and says, are you Daniel? And he says, I am. Uh, and he says, I have heard about you. In verse 14, the spirit of the holy gods is in you, that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is in you. Now, here's what I've seen and here is what's happened. And nobody else can tell me what these things mean. But if you'll tell me what they mean, I'm going to give you all of these rewards that I promised to them. And I'll make you the third ruler in Babylon. Verse 17, Daniel answered and said before the king, let thy gifts be to thyself and give thy rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing unto the king and make it known to him the interpretation. But here's what Daniel does. This is what's great. Before Daniel gets the interpretation, he gives Belshazzar a history lesson. Right. O thou king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. Right. So your dad didn't get here by your great grandfather didn't get here of his own strength. Yahweh, my God, put him in that position. 
And for the majesty that he gave him, all, all people and nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would he slew, whom he would he kept alive, whom he would he set up, and whom he would he put down. Right. So he had an amazing kingdom with all kinds of power and authority. Life and death of the subjects was literally in the palm of his hand. But his heart was lifted up. His mind was hardened with pride. And he was deposed from his kingly throne. They took the glory from him. He was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts. And the dwelling was like the wild asses. They fed him with grass like an oxen. His body was wet with dew of heaven. Again, till we, we see our key truth. Till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men. And that he appointeth over it whomsoever he will. But here's the kicker. And thou his son, O Belshazzar, has not, known, has not humbled thy heart, though thou knewest these things. He reminded him of what we looked at in chapter 4. And he says, but you knew the story. You, you knew. Your great-grandfather exalted himself against the God of Yahweh, the God of the Bible. And you knew what God did to humble him. And yet, here's what you did. In, in the sight of God, you, you did this. You've lifted yourself up. And he goes on to explain what it meant and what it means that God, in verse 26, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Thou art weighed in the balances, and thou art found wanting. Thy kingdom is divided, given to the Medes and the Persians. And essentially what God told was going to prove His power. He was going to prove He ruled over the kingdom of men. And He was going to prove it this time, though, not by merely humbling a king, but by deposing a king and causing a change in the kingdom itself. The Medes and the Persians would rule over the, the Babylon Empire. They gave Dan, uh, Daniel all the rewards he promised. And in that very night, verse 30, was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain. And Darius the Mede took the kingdom, being about three score and two years old. God's judgment came that very night. Right, so, man, look again quickly. Daniel 4.17 The Most High ruleth the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth over it the basest of men. Verse 25. The Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. Verse 32. The Most High ruleth the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. Verse 18 of chapter 5. The Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar a kingdom and majesty and glory. And then verse 21. Till he knew... The Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men, and He appointed over it whomsoever He will. Everything we've seen in both of these chapters has been to illustrate this great truth. In Daniel's day, pagan kings needed to understand that there was a God, which is the God Yahweh, who was a sovereign ruler over history, nations, and circumstances. In our day, we're talking heads or working overtime to stir up fear, contention, anxiety, and distrust, we as disciples of Jesus, we must be reminded that our God is sovereign over history and nations and circumstances. This is the key truth we, we have to know to keep the talking heads from stirring up the contention, the fear, the anxiety, and the distrust from within us. It's going to be what we're going to have to hold on to to whatever goes on this next week, however the election turns out, whatever happens. We have to know. We have to know. Our God is sovereign over history and nations and circumstances. 
And I want to take the last few minutes to quickly ish cover what those things mean. Right? So first, God is, is sovereign. When we say God is sovereign, what it means is God can do anything He wants, anytime He wants. Right? God is not bound. He can do whatever He wants. The Bible is clear. Our God is in the heavens and He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. Now, as free will Baptists, we've often undervalued the idea of the sovereignty of God. And what, what's happened is, what's often been done is, there's been a kind of a pitting together, a, a pitting against each other of two truths. On the one hand, there is the sovereignty of God. On the other hand, there is the free will of men. And it's often presented as though it is one or the other. Either God is sovereign or humans have free will. Right now, here, let me be clear. If that were the case, if there was only one of two things we could believe from the Bible, that either God is sovereign or humans had free will, we would be utter fools to side on the free will of man over the sovereignty of our God. But the Bible does not pit these two against one another. The Bible instead puts it in such a way that we see our God works through the free decisions of humans to accomplish His sovereign plan. Right? God is sovereign over all things and is always in control of everything going on in the world He created. But God being sovereign does not demand God be the ultimate or the primary agent of every action on the planet. Instead, God is sovereign. God is in control because he has set limits to what can and what cannot be done. And he can intervene anytime he wants. So take salvation as a good example. Humans have free will to receive or reject God's free offer of salvation through faith in Jesus. But what has to happen before humans even have the opportunity to respond? The Bible says... The Father must draw them. Right? No one comes to Jesus unless God first draws them through the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Lost humanity doesn't just sit at home and go, I think I need Jesus. Any desire a sinful lost person has for God is always God first reaching out to them. And then once God has reached out to them, they have a choice. They can respond or they can reject. God is sovereign for He controls and He has put boundaries on how long we have and on what goes on. Now, the idea of God being sovereign and our having free will, it will cause, a, cause many of us to have to shift the way we think. Not because we don't believe God is sovereign, but because our view of God's sovereignty is somewhat jilted. So often what we think is, God is sovereign when I really need money and then I find in an old coat $100 that I forgot I had. God is sovereign when I skid in the ice and land in the ditch but neither me nor my vehicle is injured. God is sovereign when a test result that was first bad somehow comes back good and everything's fine. That's our idea of God's sovereignty. We can only find comfort in the sovereignty of God when things go the way we want them to go. So if we apply this to what's coming up this week, God is sovereign if the election goes the way we think it ought to go. 
And what we want to say, whether we think it or not, is God is in control when good happens, but God is not in control when things go bad. Now, the problem with this is that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is just as much in control when things go bad as he is when things go good. So in the context of Tuesday's election, we have to know who's we have to know God is sovereign no matter who wins. Find comfort in the sovereignty of God no matter who wins. For God is sovereign over history and nations and circumstances. But God is sovereign over history. God being sovereign over history means God is leading history toward a designated ending. Now this again is important for us to understand. Scripture clearly teaches this over and over again. The entire Old Testament is God leading history to a particular event, right? Leading history to His designed ending, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But God's leading of history didn't stop with the coming of Christ, or with the crucifixion of Christ, or with the resurrection of Christ, or even with the ascension of Christ. God is still leading history toward a His designed ending, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Right now, at this moment and through this election, God is sovereignly leading the history of the world to the time when Jesus comes back. I mean, that's the point. That's what God is leading to and pushing to. Now, when we talk about God being sovereign, what we often do is we can fall off in a ditch of of what's called fatalism. Well, if God's sovereign, then God's going to do what He's going to do. Why should we bother? Why should I vote? Why should I share the gospel? Why should we do anything if if God's going to do what God's going to do? Now, that's called fatalism. And it's not a biblical view of the sovereignty of God. God's sovereignty is far greater than mere fatalism. God is so sovereign, He can and does use the free will actions of humans to accomplish His sovereign will. Uh, Let me give you several. We don't have time to go into depth with them. Pharaoh hardening his own heart before God hardened it. You're familiar with the story of the Exodus? God was going, all of the ten plagues, they were all going to happen. God was going to do all of those things. And so he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart to the point that he could do all of that. But Pharaoh hardened his own heart first, multiple times. And then it says that God hardened his heart. We could look at Samson with his first wife. Samson goes out. And he sees a pretty Philistine girl. And he goes and tells his wife, she pleases, or his parents, she pleases me. I want to marry her. And they say, can't you find a, a Jewish girl to marry? And the Bible says, because they did not know this was of God. So all of the things that happened in Samson's first marriage was all a part of God using Samson's free will decisions to accomplish his will upon the Philistines. We could look at Rehoboam. In 1 Kings chapter 12, rejecting the the advice of the old men who served with his dad. Solomon was a hard master to the people. And the people came to Rehoboam and they said, hey, your dad was rough. Why don't you lighten it up? And, And if you lighten it up, we'll be like your servants forever. So Rehoboam goes to the old men who served with Solomon. He's like, what do you think? They were like, I think you should do it. I mean, if you lighten up on this, you give them this, they'll serve you forever. And then he goes to the old, the young men who grew up with him. And they're like, man, you tell them. You tell them, my dad whipped you with whips. I'm going to whip you with scorpions. 
what my dad did is going to be nothing compared to how hard I'm going to be on you. And again, the Bible tells us people did not know this was of the Lord. The Lord used Rehoboam's free will decision to reject the counsel of the old men to fulfill his sovereign plan of dividing the nation. The taxing of the birth at the birth of Jesus. Jesus' parents lived in one place. Jesus was supposed to be born in another. What are the odds? A pagan king would call for a census that would require Mary and Joseph to go to the very place Scripture said Jesus was to be born. God used the free will decisions of a pagan king to accomplish his will. The religious leaders with Jesus, their rejection and crucifixion of him was the fulfillment of God's plan. Even the the persecution of the early church in Acts chapter 8. When Jesus ascended, he said, you're to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Make disciples of all nations, preach the gospel to every creature. And what did they do? They all stayed in Jerusalem. And so what happened? The religious leaders began to persecute the church and they were forced to flee out. And the Bible says as they went, they spread the gospel throughout the world. God used the free will decisions of people to accomplish his will. More examples could be given, but it's enough to see the theme in Scripture of how God uses the free will decisions of people to sovereignly lead history to His designed ending. No matter how anyone votes on Tuesday, no matter how the election turns out, God is still sovereign over history, over nations, over circumstances. So we can be sure He is going to use however the election turns out to lead history To his designed ending. God is sovereign over nations. God being sovereign over nations means God controls when nations rise and when nations fall. Nations rise and fall according to the sovereign leading of history. To God's designed ending. We see this all throughout scripture. Plenty of examples, but here's a good verse. In Acts 17.26, we don't have time to get into the whole verse, but just the phrase that's underlined in yellow there. That God hath determined the times before appointed. God, basically what that means is God determines when nations would rise and when nations would fall. He has always done that throughout history. He has determined what nations would rise and what nation would fall. Now, what this means is... Neither candidate is going to bring about the destruction of America apart from the sovereign will of God. That's it. If one candidate destroys America, it's not because they were a Democrat or because they were a Republican. It is because God sovereignly determined the boundaries and the times and the season of America was over. Throughout history, God has raised up nations to do His will. And then He has put them down when that time was over. God has risen America to great prominence in the world. And it's all according to His will. But one day, God's time with America will be over. And He will determine it's time for it to fall. And it will happen. Now that doesn't mean we shouldn't be informed and we shouldn't vote. We absolutely should. Voting is a privilege, a great privilege we have, and we ought to take advantage of it. 
But we shouldn't lose sleep over how the election is going to turn out. We shouldn't be stressed or have ulcers or be on the verge of a nervous breakdown over how it's going to turn out. We should be aware of the issues. We should vote our faith. We should vote our conscience. And then we should trust our God is in control. Let me show you one more verse along with this God being sovereign over the nations. Romans 13. Let every soul be subject to higher powers so there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Now that's a powerful verse. That means that whoever rises to power after the election has been put there by God. There is no power. And that's what it's talking about is political powers is sort of the leading of a nation. It's ordained by God. Now we want to say, but wait, this, this, these candidates, this one is really bad. I mean, they do really bad things. But think about the, 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 the Caesar when Paul wrote that. When Paul wrote Romans, the Caesars were persecuting the church. They would get Christians and they would put them in arenas and let lions eat them for the pleasure of the crowd. The Caesar would get Christians and dip them in pitch and set them on fire while they were alive and have a party illuminated by their burning bodies and their screams. Can we be honest and say there ain't neither candidate going to do that to Christians? It doesn't matter who wins. Neither one is going to throw Christians to the lions. Neither one is going to be burning Christians alive for a party. And if Paul can say to a people who are suffering greatly under an evil emperor, be subject unto the higher powers for they're there by God, then by all means we can say the same regardless of who wins the Tuesday election. God was in control when Pharaoh rose to power in Egypt. God was in control when Pilate rose to power in Jerusalem. God is in control today. And who rises to power on Tuesday's election? God is sovereign over history, nations, circumstances, and even elections. And then finally, God is sovereign over circumstances. And we will quickly go through this. It means God can bring a win out of the worst circumstances. This is one of our great hopes from Scripture. All things work together for good to them that love God, who are called according to His purpose. This is a tremendous promise on a personal level and for our country in this time as well. What we have to understand about this is the context. This isn't a promise God will use all good things for our good and for His glory. This is a promise God will use all things for our good and His glory. In fact, the context itself is in the context of suffering. So God will use all the good things that come into our lives for our good and His glory. And God will use all the bad things that come into our lives for our good and for His glory. Now, a misunderstood aspect of this is what is good. What does it mean God will work it together for good? I think it's easy for us to bring a a self-centered mindset to this. When our primary focus is us, me, my life. Good revolves around things like my comfort, my safety, my pleasure, my health, my financial security. Therefore, since God works all things for my good, then everything in my life that happens should make me more comfortable, make me more safe, make life more enjoyable, make me more healthy, make me more prosperous. And if it doesn't turn out that way, then either God has failed me 
or God has abandoned me, or the Bible is flawed. But what we've got to understand is what's good. Good, from God's perspective, is that we would be more like Jesus. This is the ultimate of what God does in our lives. God works in us and through us and for us to first bring us to Jesus for salvation. And then he works in us and through us and for us to make us more like Jesus after salvation. So that means the the things that come into our life, whether good or bad, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to make our lives more comfortable. But it does mean God is going to use them to forge Christ-like character within us, to sanctify us, to make us more pure, more holy, more like Jesus. So what this means is no matter how the election turns out, no matter who wins, God will sovereignly work through the results for our good, for his glory, to bring us to be more and more like Jesus and to bring others to the place where they would see their need for Jesus and the salvation he offers. He will do this because he is sovereign over history and nations and circumstances. And one last thing and we'll close. This promise, as great as it is, is not for everyone. Notice what it says. To them who are the called according to his purpose. Them that love God and are the called according to his purpose. This promise of God working all things for our good and his glory. It is only to those who have repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ. To those who love God and who are serving God. So if you want this promise for you today, then the first thing you need to do is be sure you personally have repented of your sins. You have believed in Jesus Christ. And that He is your Lord. He is your Savior. Then and only then can you look at this and say, no matter how bad things are, no matter how bad things go, God will work it for my good, for His glory. And in the end, I will be more like Jesus than I was before.